0: Numbers, chapter 24, verse 10 through 19. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed him these three times. Now leave at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell the messengers you sent me? Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could do nothing, anything on my own accord, good or bad, to go beyond the command of the Lord. And I must say only what the Lord says. Now I am going back to my people. But come, let me warn you of what this people will do to your people in days to come. Then he spoke his message. The prophecy of Balaam's son Abed Or, the prophecy of one whose eyes sees clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. The word of the Lord.
1: The Lord be with with you. If the book of Numbers were a streaming series, I have a title to suggest Wander, Grumble, Rebel, Repeat. The Israelites were condemned to walk around and around the Sinai Peninsula. And yes, they were walking, think about it, for years because they had disobeyed God. They were exhausted. And sometimes reading the book of Numbers, so are we. They're not learning their lesson. Maybe we're not either. So God, the master teacher, changes things up. When the Israelites shuffle through the sand, God seems to say, meanwhile, back at the enemy outpost. And so we have met Balak, King Balak, in a couple of sermons already. He is the king of a tribe called the Moabites. Now, Balak had not been on the scene before these recent sermons and chapters, But now he sees the vast horde of Israelites advancing. And he is sick to his stomach. You see, the Israelites and the Moabites have history. When Israel first came out of Egypt, first escaped slavery in Egypt, they got to the land where the Moabites were and the Moabites turned away. Now they are ethnic cousins to the Israelites, but they turned away and refused even to give them food or water. So the Israelites went on, they weren't able to respond at the time, but now, years later, the Israelites have grown in number and King Balak has heard that they have a powerful God on their side. So he's worried about revenge. What can he do? He can't depend upon his own armies and he doesn't have the guts to go and talk to Moses who is the leader of the Israelites so he decides he's going to try buying a little peace of mind by hiring a magic man. That's what I'm calling Balaam. A magic man. To come and put a curse on the Israelites. I'm going to give you a little foreshadowing. I'll step off. It's not going to work. So After initially refusing the job offer, Balaam finally agrees to come and give it a try. So three times, Balaam tells Balak how, and they offer to God lavish animal sacrifices. Three times. To try and persuade God to curse the Israelites. But all three times, Balaam comes down off the the time of his time with God, and he says to Balak, Sorry, no can do. And Balak is getting exhausted. All three times Balaam says, look, I can't do anything because no one can reverse God's blessing. All three times he has come back and told Balak of all the ways God has blessed the Israelites and is still blessing them. You see, that's because, and you already know this, but I'll just remind you that years before this, God had made a covenant with the people of Israel hundreds of years before, The Israelites didn't go to God begging for the deal. God comes to them in the person of Abraham and makes a covenant. He goes to Abraham and makes a covenant, and God offers the Israelites blessings forever. Well, they don't always keep up with the covenant. But even so, Balaam says to King Balak, even if the Israelites are unfaithful, God is not, because God is not human He does not lie, and he does not change his mind. Let that sink in just a second. God does not lie, and he does not change his mind. He does what he says he'll do and fulfills what he promises. So we arrive at today's story. Joel just read it. Balak is fed up with that line. He is tired of Balaam coming back to him and saying, I can't say anything except what God lets me say. So Balak is disgusted and furious, and he sends Balaam packing. And he shouts after him, And you can thank your God for not getting a paycheck. Well, Balaam turns around. I think he kind of turns around and says, Okay, have it your way. I told you this is what would happen. I'm going home, but before I go, I want to give you a little insight into what those people down there are going to do to your people in days to come. So the fourth oracle, Balaam has given three oracles about the blessings of God. This fourth oracle is simple, but it's stunning. For the first three oracles, Scripture says that God had put a word into Balaam's mouth. But for this fourth oracle, God himself comes upon Balaam. That's something that happens in the Old Testament to very few people, but it does happen to Balaam. The Spirit of God comes upon him, and Balaam describes the ecstatic, visionary trance that he goes into. He says, The prophecy of Balaam, one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I cannot imagine that experience, but that's what Balaam experiences. And in his fourth oracle, Balaam prophesies to God's promise of ultimate blessing. The coming of a glorious Savior King who will vanquish all enemies. The unique testimony of God's blessing upon the people of Israel and through the people of Israel to the whole world. Quite a promise, but actually not a new one. God had made this promise, in so many words, to Abraham all those years ago when he made the covenant. God had said to Abraham, I will make you very fruitful. And you know the story, Abraham was a really old man, and his wife is old as well. But God says, I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. And then, just so the people of Israel wouldn't forget, God repeated that promise through the words of Jacob, who was a descendant of Abraham and who was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, the great patriarch Jacob, he's lying on his deathbed and he blesses all of his sons and two of his grandsons and he says to his son Judah, the lion that he is called, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies, he says, your father's sons will bow down to you. What a strange blessing to give your son that his brothers would bow down to him. The scepter will not depart from Jacob, Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the one to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Listen to that last part again. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the one to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. I love that phrasing in English. I I think it's more beautiful in Hebrew, but I wouldn't dare try to pronounce it. He to whom it belongs, in the instant of his trance, Balaam saw this promise. Can you imagine? He sees the future. The Apostle Paul wrote God calls into being things that were not. Balaam was just a pagan fortune teller. God made him a prophet. So what does a prophet do, a real prophet? That's a a huge question and a perennial question. I heard this said once in seminary, and it was helpful to me. Prophets don't foretell the future they tell forth the word of God. Prophets don't foretell the future. Prophets aren't like a kind of cheap horoscope. Prophets speak the message God gives them about who he is and what he has in store for humans and for all creation. That's what prophets do. In that one instance, that's what Balaam did. But that leaves us And it left even Balaam and those who heard his prophecy with the enormous question, When? When? I can't tell you the number of sermons I used to hear as a child with a preacher up front with a whiteboard or in the old days a flip chart or a blackboard. And he, always a he, would be making these charts about when the end of the world was coming who was going to have to be overthrown, and what Daniel's statue meant, and all this stuff. I, I've heard that so many times, people predicting the time. It's like the, in the old days when they had paper newspapers there by the checkout counter at the grocery store, and on the December 31st, you always saw that predictions for the new year, you know. Well, that's not what prophets do. Prophets don't tell you when it's going to happen. So we're always wondering, when was this person coming? Well, unfortunately, like all scriptural prophecy, Balaam's oracle doesn't specify chronology. But here's the good part. You and I have two and a half millennia of hindsight to listen and think, when was Balaam's prophecy fulfilled? And I think we can see some fulfillments that Balak could only have dreaded. Because when the Israelites finally did cross into the promised land, the land God had promised them, they did indeed receive the blessing of kings who led them in defeat over their enemies. 300 years or so after Balaam prophesied, Israel's great king, David, trounced Moab and decimated Edom. He was such a great warrior with the power God gave him that some of the tribes that Balaam mentions in his oracle, we don't even know who they are anymore. We don't know who the people of Sheth and the people of, people of Seir are. Various translators, various uh, scholars, various commentators, nobody really knows who those people are. They were so defeated, so wiped off the map. Bright stars in their day. Dreaded by their enemies, gone dark. But Balaam said more than that. He said more than that these people would be defeated. He said, I see him, but not now. This is so mysterious. I behold him, but not near. In more distant days, a thousand years or so, after Balaam, another king was born the star out of Jacob, the scepter out of Israel. In the days of the Roman Empire, the long-awaited, long-desired star of Israel finally appeared. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, in the time of the king of Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, now thinking about Balaam's prophecy, listen to what they say. You've heard it a million times. Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Jesus, the bright and morning star, is the fulfillment of God's promise, he is the covenant head of Israel. In the words of Rabbi Jacob Milgram, what a man cannot predict, what the future holds, the Lord is able to declare because he himself holds the future in his hands. Truly, Balaam spoke the word of God. King David rose to the throne and defeated Israel's ancient enemies by the sword. But Christ the king was put on a cross to die, and emerged from an empty tomb victorious over the most fearsome enemy of all, death itself. In those days, long, long, long ago, Balak was sick with fear of death for himself and for his people. The Hebrew words say that he was so sick, he was, it was, his fear was nauseous. Have you ever felt like that? I'm so thankful for Eric's prayer and his words before, because I think a lot of people feel that way. I have felt that way, certainly. So tied up in knots over what is happening, what is going to happen, what we know, what we don't know, what we can't control. Fear is so common these days. It's ubiquitous. It's almost as if to be human is to be afraid. But, of course, most of the time we don't admit that we're afraid. We call it anxiety. And it's killing us. Actually killing us. Emotional burdens. Uncertainties. Imbalances in our thinking. Physiological stress and strain. We are tired. And those are just a few of the weapons... This may sound strange, but bear with me. Those, fatigue, anxiety, and all the other things we could list, depression, all those things are just a few of the weapons that death brings against us, aiming to rule over us. How can we stand against that? How can Christians, how can anyone stand against the forces that are defeating us? Well, first with the good news. This is really important. The triumph of Christ the King means that death is not the end of life. Praise God, that's not the end. No matter where you are on the road of the chronology of your life toward your death, if the Lord tarries, you and I are going to die. But that's not the end. I take great comfort in that. I'm 73 years old, hey, the end is closer than the beginning. You know, seriously. But no matter where you are, maybe you just had a terrible diagnosis. Maybe, maybe something is threatening you physically. Maybe there's an uncertainty going on in your body. No matter what happens to us, death is not the end. And also, the triumph of Christ means this. And this is, to me, this is like the second chapter that's even better. Death cannot rule over us while we live. We don't have to lie down and take all that's going against us. So what does it mean when I say that just as sure as mighty armies have gone down to dust, our everyday enemies will be overcome by Christ in us? How is that going to happen? Eric made a very good point. We need to offer our anxieties to God, our depression to God, our concerns, our fears to God God gives us another, another power as well, and that is this. When I say that Christ is going to overcome our everyday enemies, I mean Christ did not die on the cross to forgive our sins and come out of the empty tomb to grant us new life just so we can waste our energies in pointless struggles against an enemy he has already defeated. Against the forces of evil and death that would keep us self-absorbed and out of harmony with the rest of the world and with God, Christ has offered us strength within exactly what we need. And you might be thinking, I hope you are thinking, what is it? Because I need it. I'm reminding myself as well as I am probably reminding or maybe telling you Hear Christ's words of gift, the gracious offer. He says, I'm going to read the whole thing, and I've highlighted only parts, but I'm going to read the whole passage. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Now, I just want to pause right there for a second. I know the scripture goes on and I'll read the rest of it. But think about it. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I cannot tell you the number of times I've read that scripture at a funeral. And here sits the grieving family. There amassed are the grieving friends and co-workers and neighbors. And I'm saying, do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. How can I not seem to be mocking them? I always wonder... How did the Jews in concentration camps hear these promises of God? I always think about that because it doesn't always turn out nicely. I mean, we just need to be honest about that as a church. You know, you can smile and smile and smile, but there's suffering going on, you know? And we need to be honest about the fact that sometimes we do feel troubled and sometimes we feel afraid. And we just need to say, you know, that's okay, that's not a sin. Not a sin to feel bad. Seriously, I know church groups, traditions that teach that's a sin. If you can't get your emotional and mental health house in order, you know, you're not on the right side of the Lord. Poppycock. May I just use an old and an honored word. Poppycock. That's just nonsense. You might supply your own epithets. That's just nonsense. It's ridiculous to tell people that what they're experiencing isn't real. And that doesn't mean you're on the wrong side of your spiritual life. That simply means you're a human being. And the devil is well and living in St. Louis and every other part of the world. All we need to do is recognize that the Lord has triumphed. You know it? And give him glory. We need to pray. We need to take our concerns to the Lord. But here's the second part, and it's really important. My peace I give to you. And then Jesus goes on. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Settle down. Just remain in the love of Christ. Even in prison. Even in prison, Paul writes about the love of Christ. The peace of Christ. The peace that passes understanding. And then Jesus goes on. He says, I have told you this. I've been telling you all this. So that my joy may be complete. He's getting ready to be crucified. And so that your joy may be complete. My joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Look at that. I have told you this so that my joy, Jesus says, may be in you. And your joy may be complete. They're going to be mourning his death within 24 hours. He knows that. He's not mocking them. He's making a promise that goes beyond the cross, and beyond the tomb, and on to into eternity. Look, peace, love, joy—that is real power. Peace, love, joy. Those aren't just words on a Christmas card, not just words on a plaque at Home Goods. That's a—that's re- the real McCoy. That's the power. And what do I mean? I mean, that is what the Bible calls some of the fruit of the Spirit. See, Jesus doesn't save us just to say, well, now you wait around here and then eventually you'll get to be with me. No, he saves us so he can transform us by growing the fruit of his Spirit in us. That's why Pentecost happened. That's why the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. He didn't just come and go on back. He came to stay. Jesus says he has been with you and he will be in you. The Holy Spirit is in you if you want him to be. And he is growing his fruit in you. Live it. Go with it. Listen to the Lord. Peace, love, joy. Life-changing gifts from God into everyone who will receive them. And you think, well, I don't have any peace. I don't have any love and joy. Shut up and just wait. Listen. (laughs) Calm down. Like a three-year-old. I want a cookie. I want a cookie. I'm opening the cookie jar. It's right here in front of you. Stop talking and eat it. Stop talking. Stop saying what you don't have. Sit and listen and wait on the Lord because that is how we stand. That is how we stand in trusting submission to Christ, our victorious King, transformed by the flourishing of the Holy Spirit within us, free of fear and blessed by God. Can you say with me hallelujah? Hallelujah! Hallelujah. Amen.